0: The American History Podcast, Season 2, Episode 4, The American Empire. Welcome to the American History Podcast, hosted by Sean Warswick. back, friends and listeners. This is episode 2.4, and it's pretty much guaranteed to get me into some trouble, most likely. Um, I'd be shocked if I didn't lose a couple of subscribers to the show, maybe even some hate mail, who knows. Um, Now, that's not me asking for hate mail. I'm not asking you to unsubscribe. Um, It's just that I think this episode will be controversial in a way. Um, And in a way, for me, it's quite special because I'm actually... Unveiling my thesis for uh, this season right here, right now. Just another bit of information uh, before we get going. This is going to be a beast of an episode. I don't know if it'll be the longest in our uh, show history, but it's got a lot of information and ideas in it. Um, it might be one that you maybe have to listen to a couple of times just to see, just to make sure you get it right. Um, you understand what I'm, I'm putting forth here. Um, you're also welcome to push back against me. Don't just accept my ideas at face value. If you have any questions or comments, I welcome them. Again, you can go to the website and email me from the website. It's www.theamericanhistorypodcast.com. You can also find me on Twitter at AmericanHisCast. So um, feel free to contact me and let me know what you think. So without further ado, let's get into the American Empire. Now, what we're really dealing with here is the ideological foundations of American empire. And several years ago, I had a student uh, whose name I'm not going to mention, uh, but also had his brother a couple years after him. Uh, They were both students in what was called the International Baccalaureate Program, or is called the International Baccalaureate Program. And the older brother was kind of shocked when I called the United States an empire, Now, as anyone who's read any textbook uh, history of the United States knows, or if you've gone to school in the United States, um, you should know that Americans rarely, if ever, refer to themselves as an empire. Now, okay, there is one chapter um, in every American history textbook, and it's usually taught in the second semester of U.S. history that is usually titled something along the lines of The Imperial Moment – now, that chapter deals with the war against Spain in 1898, and it will often include the time up to about Woodrow Wilson. But that's it. It doesn't go further. Okay? Um, and notice that the title, again, is usually something along the lines of the imperial moment. So look what they're doing there. This was like a momentary lapse of reason if I can borrow um, <laughs> the title of a Pink Floyd album. Okay? Um that's what they're trying to set up. The, the Americans, we don't have an empire. okay. Thus, the reaction of my former student is and was to be expected. Even some who argue against the current version of the American empire, politicians like, um, let's say, Ron Paul or authors such as Patrick Buchanan, they use the founding fathers as an example of how we should act. The latter even had a book about two decades ago titled A Republic, Not an Empire. A book which I found quite enjoyable at the time and um, if you've ever read any Patrick Buchanan, um, he's definitely uh, – he, he's – man, he's got a way with words. He's, he's a very good author um, and that was a book that helped turn me from neoconservative, middle-of-the-road Ronald Reagan republican into the radical that I am today. It set me down that path. However, I'm going to argue something quite different. I would argue, as would uh, the person I'm most indebted to when it comes to some of my evidence at least, specifically the Bible and a guy named Emmer de Vittel, whom you'll meet in this episode, and that's historian Thaddeus Russell. Um, both of us basically would argue that the United States was imperial from the beginning, from day one. Okay, so we start from the beginning. And if you are wondering what this has to do with the war against Mexico, all will be clear by the end of this episode, or I hope so. So let's start with the Bible. The New Testament has a verse in it, which um, Christians are told it is their duty to go out and teach all nations. And this is Matthew 28, 16 through 30. So the first question that pops into mind, teach nations, what are Christians supposed to teach them? Are they supposed to teach them Christianity? Okay, perhaps. But is that all? Could this, my question is, could this be taken to mean teach them as in improve them? Because that's what teaching is, right? As a teacher, I'm supposed to improve you, um, at least in my case, in history. I'm supposed to improve your knowledge of history, make you more historically aware. So could this be taken to mean... Teach them in a way to improve them, perhaps bring the light of civilization to them. I would say this is actually the foundation for the Western idea of what's called the civilizing mission, uh, something which both the, fr- the British and the French engaged in um, during the 19th and 20th century was this idea that they had to go out and civilize the not, – uh, not exactly a nice term, but to civilize the barbarians of the world. Okay, um, And that's something which I would say the United States feels it's doing, it's engaged in, and it's still doing today. But if that's not enough, you can add John Winthrop's concept of the, quote, shining city on a hill. Now, we spoke about this briefly in episode 11 of the first season. Now, I don't believe that he wrote it with the intention of creating an empire. Okay? That's, not, that's not what he had in mind. Um, But the fact is this has been used by later generations, this phrase, as the justification, especially by neoconservatives, for American overseas empire. Further, if you add in the part from the Bible that we mentioned just a moment ago, it starts to become a bit clearer. The Americans were building this city upon a hill, and then it was their duty to go out and teach all nations to civilize them and show them the way. Bring them the light of civilization and to basically remake these people into copies of good, civilized Americans. Now we get to the part that I owe to Thaddeus Russell, and I'd be lying if I said that I was aware um, of the next portion for ages and ages. Um, I, I haven't. I've just been aware of it basically for about a month or so, um, and it's really what I think is the missing link. It's extremely important. And so another confession. While I've uh, long felt that the American empire had its roots in the founding of the nation, in the founding generation, and even before that, um, I had not had the full evidence to support my suspicions or at least not enough evidence to back up what I felt was true. At least in my own mind, I didn't think I could back it up. Um, But I think I've got it now. So the missing link is a guy named D. Vittel an 18th century philosopher who wrote a work titled The Law of Nations. Now, I'd never heard of this um, until just, like I said, about a month ago, um, but the founding fathers were more than familiar with it. Okay? Um, ben Franklin himself said in 1775 of the work, quote, it came to us in good season when the circumstances of a rising state made it necessary to frequently consult the laws, the law of nations, end quote. Um, further, Franklin said that the book was constantly in the hands of members of Congress, and so the influence that Vittel had, in my opinion, was immense. Now, that brings up the question, what did he say? <laughs> well, quite a bit, actually. To start, Vittel mentions, quote, the universal society of the human race, end quote. What does that mean? The Universal society of the human race. What what does that mean? Well, it's an unverifiable assertion. First of all, it's an interesting one as well. In many ways, it's very Christian. Think of the idea of the universality of Christianity. The idea that it is the job of the Christian to go out and teach all nations, and add that to the idea that the human race is part of this quote, universal society, okay? So what Vitell is saying is that this applies to everyone everywhere. He further mentions that while you might unite in a private association or as a separate state or a separate nation, you are still bound to the performance of your duties towards the rest of mankind. He even goes further and he says this, quote, Having resigned their rights and submitted their will to the body of the society in everything that concerns their common welfare, it thenceforward belongs to that body, that state, and its rulers to fulfill the duties of humanity towards strangers, end quote. Okay, so this is radical. This is revolutionary. This is an incredibly, incredibly radical idea that sets American foreign policy and – Foreign relations on this imperial trajectory. It is according to what they're what they're believing now is that it is your duty and it is your obligation to work not for yourself, not to better yourself, not even to better your own state or your own country, but to better humanity. If we have this shining city on a hill, it is our duty, our obligation to share in this shining city on a hill. You can't just keep it to yourself. You have to go out and create others. So keep this in mind. Okay, it gets better. Quote, we have already observed in establishing the obligation to cultivate the earth that those nations cannot exclusively appropriate to themselves more land than they have occasion for. End quote. So, uh, think about it. You cannot have more land than you have a need for. Now, if you're an Indian and you're hearing this or you're reading this around 1770, um, my recommendation to you, arm yourself. Go buy some weapons now, okay? Um, you'd better start purchasing guns big time. Because, and, and now this is important, and it's going to also apply to Mexico come the 1840s. Americans will accuse Mexico, in essence, of shirking their duty. And worse, okay, he notes that Europeans who at home were too closely pent up found land in the new world, quote, of which the savages stood in no particular need, quote. seeing as how they had so much of it, and, and here's the quote, and of which they made no actual and constant use were lawfully entitled to take possession of it and settle it with colonies, end quote. So this is justification for taking land not only from the Indians, but it's going to be used to take justify taking land from Mexico. okay As far as the Indians are concerned, they're not using it. They have all of this land and instead of cultivating it for the betterment of humanity, which is what you're supposed to do, right they were using just what they needed. Now you fast forward to the 1840s it, this is also a condemnation of Mexico. As you're going to see in a later episode, which so far is chapter, episode 22, an episode on Manifest Destiny, the Americans argued that by losing the Comanches, by having this huge country and not developing it and not cultivating it, the Mexicans were essentially rewinding the clock of history. They were shirking this divinely appointed duty. They were violating God's intention for what humans should do. And by taking it, the United States was actually helping humanity. By the way, this is also kind of natural rights theory. Um, It might be referred to as natural rights theory, natural law theory, um, but it's actually more about obligations and duties. Okay, so we must unite, we must consolidate, and we must join into one nation. Okay, Um, this is John Adams, 1755. The establishment of a single nation state from the deep south to New England, if that's anything, it's imperialist. A single capital, a single head of state, how is that going to be anything but imperial? Now, if you take that and you add to it a few of the phrases from the Declaration of Independence, you mix it up with what we've just discussed, and it's actually quite scary. Um, But it's also quite clear that from the very beginning, the United States was imperialist. Now, I'm not going to read the entire Declaration of Independence to you, but here's a few phrases. Quote, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that amongst these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. End quote. Now, let's start with the last part first, happiness. That was originally property. But let's back up. What's so self-evident about any of this? It's not. Unless that is, this is some sort of religious text. Okay? So there's that religion thing mixed in there. Um, then we go back to happiness and to the original phrase, property. That relates to Emmer de Vitel. Taking nature and turning it into something productive. Making it your property. That's also John Locke and natural rights theory. But then there's the real interesting point at the end where he says, quote, But when a long train of abuses reduces them under absolute despotism, it is their right, it is their duty to throw off such government, end quote. But who? The people? What people? Notice it's kind of vague. He doesn't say the American people, does he? And remember, there wasn't really this idea of an American people at this point anyways. Okay? Um, He doesn't say the people of the colonies. So, I would offer the following proposition. Um, The author here is referring to people in the aggregate, the people of the civilized world. And remember, it is the duty and the obligation of people to improve humanity. So, in my mind, this becomes a justification  … for American interference the world over throughout the last 150 years or so, whether it's Cuba in the late 19th century, Vietnam beginning in the 1950s and 60s, um, Iraq in 1991 and 2003. How about North Korea? They suffer under a despotism, or to use the words of the Declaration, they suffer, quote, a long train of abuses and usurpations… Pursuing invariably the same object evinces a design to reduce them under absolute despotism. It is their right, so forth and so on, end quote. Who? The people. And what is what are they supposed to do? They're supposed to throw off such government. But again, who has this right? Who has this duty? The authors of the Declaration of Independence are quite vague. Um, purposely, I believe, in the way they are s- – it's just why are they vague okay um, it's, it's weird but if you say for example goodbye Saddam Hussein goodbye Kim Jong Il or Kim Jong Un um, and then suddenly now you've got an excuse for why we are saving these people from despots and despotism I hope that makes sense so far So let's look at the Constitution and the founders of that document, Alexander Hamilton, James Madison, the Federalists. What they wanted was a government that was a strong central government. Okay, um, So here's Madison, um, 1787. He says, the question is whether small or extensive republics are more favorable to the election of proper guardians of the public will, and it is clearly decided in their favor of the latter, end quote. So they wanted more power in the federal government, less power in the states. The founders who didn't like or trust the masses, whom they thought were corrupt and simply a bunch of drunkards, if you remember back to what we talked about in the the social episode of season one, they felt that a bigger government was the more likely thing – the bigger a government was, the more likely it was to do the right thing. You couldn't trust local government. Okay? Um, He believed, at least at this point – that a large general government would be more just, more likely to do the right thing. Now, I will say that Madison is a little bit of a problematic character in that he was pretty good at changing um, what he said and what he believed uh, over the years. But this is what he said at that point. Now, while the Federalists went out to some extent, they actually didn't get what they wanted completely. They didn't get – And they sure as heck didn't get it without a fight. And what I mean is that the reality is while they didn't get an overly strong central government, they did get a vaguely worded document which would allow the government, whether you like it or not, to grow into the imperial edifice that it has become. Now as far as the people – as far as the fight, I should say, people like Patrick Henry knew this constitution, this creation was dangerous, and it would lead to empire. So here's Patrick Henry, quote, if we admit this consolidated government, it will become like – it will be because we like a great splendid one. Some way or other, we must be a great and mighty empire. When the American spirit was in its youth, the language of America was different. Liberty, sir, was then the primary object, end quote. And he goes on to say that assisted by the ropes and chains of consolidation, this, con- this the constitution – of the constitution, um, the country would be converted into a, quote, powerful and mighty empire, end quote. He even goes further. He says, look, there's no checks, there's no balances that can keep the government from growing large, no matter what the Federalists are saying. And I think Patrick Henry was right. He and the anti-Federalists argued that the larger the government, the less control you have over it. Further, he connects the constitution to empire. The United States, in bringing the people of the 13 states together under one government, is, in effect, imperial. So in a weird way, both of these guys are kind of predicting what would happen. All right. Now, the idea that the founding fathers were against an imperialist ideology is another one that I want to deal with, and I would say it's just incorrect. They were, at the very least, planting the seeds for a distinct American imperialist agenda. Even some of my heroes, like Ron Paul, who argue that Thomas Jefferson wasn't an imperialist. Um, I hate to say it. I, I would argue he's wrong. Um, in 1780, Jefferson mentions the idea that the United States would be, quote, an empire of liberty, end quote. What does that mean? An empire isn't voluntary in the first place, um, So I'm not sure what – how you can have an empire of liberty, (laughs) okay? Um, Some argue that he was postulating the idea that the United States would build such an amazing republic that everyone would want to emulate us. Back to this shining city on the hill idea, which we mentioned earlier. We would turn these other countries into copies of ourselves through commerce and trade is what you might argue that Jefferson was saying, okay? But here's Jefferson again, this time in 1809, writing to James Madison, who at that point was president. Quote, We should then have only to include the North, Canada, in our confederacy, and we should have such an empire for liberty as she has never surveyed since the creation. No constitution was ever before so well calculated as ours for extensive empire and self-government. By this point, Jefferson had already purchased the Louisiana Territory from France for basically a song and a dance. It was the largest land swap in history, and if you happen to live there already, guess what? You're now American. Um, You are now part of the American Continental Empire. Okay, so I've gone on for a while about this, and while I've mentioned them briefly, I've not talked too much about um, these so-called foreigners uh, who've been incorporated into the empire. But what if they preferred a different way of life? Do they get a choice? Of course not. Remember, the admonition to go out and teach the nations, to improve them, comes from God. One is obligated to do so. Um, those people who created and preferred to live in a different, a different way of life, um, they're inferior They're backwards. They're the ones who are ripe for being educated and reformed, uh, dare I say, civilized, in the American way. Now, people always think that in order for an empire to exist, it has to exist overseas. But that's not the definition of empire, uh, not in the slightest. So let's look at a couple of different definitions. First um, is by historians Jane Burbank and Frederick Cooper in their book Empires in World History. They define empire as, quote, large political units, expansions, or with a memory of power that are extended over space, polities that maintain distinction and hierarchy as they incorporate new people, end quote. So you'll note that at least, according to these two scholars, empires do not need to extend overseas. That is nowhere in the definition. They extend over space. They incorporate new people. What else was the United States doing if not incorporating new people when it purchased the Louisiana Territory? Another definition is offered by historian William Appleman Williams. He refers to empire as the forcible subjugation of formerly independent peoples by a wholly external power and their subsequent rule. By the Imperial Metropolis, Empires were built historically by taking land from the traditional owners through military or economic power, and then integrating them into an extended economic and political system. This is what the United States was doing, and it's what it has done, I would argue, since its founding, and it continues to do so even today. okay? Um, furthermore, this is not anathema to the American tradition. Instead, I think you can see, it's wholly consistent with the ideals of the founding fathers. Okay, so let's look at the empire in action a little bit. I hope you're still with me. The aforementioned uh, Williams also argues that the establishment of the United States in the late 18th century created not an isolationist nation. Instead, what was created was a world power which sought out and desired to play a very active role in international affairs. And so there are two examples which um, we can use of the United States playing this active role during the presidencies of supposed isolationists like um, Jefferson and Madison. Now, the first is Jefferson and his involvement um, of the U.S. Navy in the war against the Barbary Pirates. At the same time that the Napoleonic Wars are raging in Europe – you've got these barbary pirates operating off the north coast of Africa up in the Mediterranean. Now there's at least one non-military option which could have been used. Okay. They are yes, they're 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 hurting our shipping and all that, but that doesn't mean that you necessarily have to respond with war or with military action, okay? Um Instead, what Jefferson, this isolationist president, does is he takes a very aggressive move to engage in a war that's thousands of miles from home. Now, maybe this isn't an imperial move. I would disagree. But it does shed some light, I should say, on the fact that Jefferson was not this, quote, isolationist, and certainly not the isolationist that neocons like John McCain uh, try to paint him out to be. Okay. And so this brings up the question, what was he supposed to do? I I can hear you thinking that right now. Just let American ships be attacked? Okay, look, I might be naive, but I would argue, and I know I'm not the only one who would argue this, that the best course of action is not armed intervention. If you want to convert people to your way of thinking, you don't do it at the point of a gun. It's through peaceful interaction and dialogue. As John Quincy Adams famously said, And I'm just paraphrasing him here. Uh, But the United States does not need to go abroad to seek monsters to destroy. If you want to convert people, you do it through peaceful interaction and commerce. Um, Example number one currently is China. Uh, We didn't need to go to war with China to move them into the free market. They became a free market economy willingly. Um, They wanted the good stuff that we had. I believe it was Deng – Xiaoping in the late 1970s visited – I think it was New York and said basically we need this to his advisors. We need this market economy. Okay, um, You can look at the Soviets. The Soviets were also won over to the free market um, to trade and commerce, not through a gun but through example. Now, I can hear you thinking, OK, China is not a free society. The Communist Party still rules China. Okay, that's true, but what does that matter? They are a free market. Um, The same for Russia. What do you care about their political system? Why do you feel like you need to go over and fix their political system and make it resemble ours? Is that your duty? Is that maybe your obligation to improve humanity? Do you see what I did right there? Think about that. Then there is Madison and the War of 1812. Now, often this is seen as a failure. Uh, Okay, but it could be viewed in a very different light. So think of it this way. While, yes, the United States suffered the humiliation of having its capital occupied and burnt, um, it also uh, failed in this quite grandiose plan to capture Canada. Okay, sure. But it fought the British Empire to a draw. So that's two wars since the 1770s. You've got the American War for Independence. Now you've got the War for 1812. And the big, bad, mighty British Empire is one loss and one draw. The British had to negotiate a settlement, and the Americans, well, they secured their west flank up to the Mississippi River. Furthermore, Spain ended up ceding Florida to the United States and defined the border between the Spanish Empire, North America, and the U.S. So now Americans could proudly proclaim they were the preeminent power in North America. So what was this? Is this isolationism? I would certainly say not. I would suggest this is an aggressive and expansive foreign policy that is being implemented and acted upon by an imperial government which has its roots in the revolutionary generation, as we spoke about earlier. Um, Williams himself notes that Americans thought of themselves as an empire from the birth of the republic. The problem that's identified by historian um, Thomas A. Bailey as early as the 1960s is in our terminology. Often we associate the term empire with world power. Now, Bailey notes...  … that by defining the term world power as, quote, a nation with sufficient power in being or capable of being mobilized to affect world politics positively and over a period of time, end quote. He says that's the problem. By defining it that way, um, it kind of makes you think of – I don't know how to put it – empire as in you know the the evil empire, galactic empire, Star Wars. That's what you're thinking, okay? Um, But… As Bailey himself says, if you ask, does this definition describe the United States from the start and you really think about it, the answer is emphatically yes. Remember, we had the power to fight the British Empire twice in four decades, one win and one draw. Imperial. So where does that leave us? To summarize, the United States is an empire. It was founded as an empire. It is today an empire. Thus, imperialism is part and parcel of our DNA. That imperialism, that desire for empire, which was present at the birth of the United States, is what guides American foreign policy even today. Indeed, um, there are three guiding principles to American foreign policy, some more benign than others. First, there is a humanitarian impulse to help other people solve their problems. I I don't think you can doubt that. I do think that, um, to some extent, Americans, for the most part, mean well. Secondly, the United States is guided by the principle of self-determination at the international level. Now, these first two concepts are complementary. Um, However, they're going to be contradicted by the third concept – And that is the belief that other people are incapable of solving their own problems and improving their own lives unless they follow the blueprint laid down by the United States. In other words, Americans want to um, go out and help others. They want to do good. They want to be helpful. However, they believe they have a God-given commitment or commandment to go out and to teach the people of the world how to better themselves. If those people don't want to do it our way, then the problem rests with the people themselves, not with the fact that it's our way. There's something wrong with those people, um, quite obviously. They must be then educated. You must teach them. You must make them understand that our way is the right way. Okay, so that's quite a bit of information. Um, We're going to leave it there at least for now. Uh, We will pick up this issue and carry it on to its next logical step when we discuss Manifest Destiny, an episode which is scheduled to be number 22, although that might change, so don't bet on it, please. Um, Hopefully I didn't lose you. Um, If you have any questions, please feel free to email me. The email is sean at com. You can also find me on Twitter at AmericanHisCast. If you go to the website, hopefully within the next few days, you'll be able to see the sources that we're using for Season 2. And you can support the show by entering Amazon via those sources whenever you're going to make an Amazon purchase. It doesn't have to be the, the actual source itself that you buy. You can buy anything on Amazon, and Amazon will donate a few pennies to the show. I mean Jeff Bezos has plenty of money, so why not let him throw some money our way? And finally... If you are on the website, please sign up for our email updates. All right. Until next time, I'm Sean. You've been listening to the American History Podcast, and we'll see you soon.